Hi there, Derek Thorne here with another edition of the audio news programme from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. In this edition, we'll be hearing about the link between HIV/AIDS and leprosy, and we'll also hear from the man who led the smallpox eradication programme for 11 years on why he thinks we need to reconsider whether we can really eradicate polio. First, though, let's hear about maternal health and some new research which highlights the importance of this issue all over the world. With more, here's Anna Lacy. A series of papers in the Lancet called "Women Deliver" highlights the stark contrast in maternal deaths between the developed and developing world. Over half a million women die each year due to pregnancy-related illness, but while a woman in Ireland stands a one in forty-seven thousand chance of dying during childbirth, one in eight will die in Afghanistan and Sierra Leone. What's more, maternal mortality rates in these worst-affected countries haven't declined significantly in the past thirty years. Two studies, one based in Bangladesh and the other in Burkina Faso, provided insight into the cause of these deaths and how they could be avoided. Unsafe abortions and lack of care for women with severe obstetric complications emerged as significant factors. Veronique Filippi from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine has found that women with severe obstetric complications have a much higher risk of death and mental health problems than women with an uncomplicated delivery, and that these effects can last for at least a year postpartum. She told me more about the study, which took place in Burkina Faso. We followed the women for one year postpartum, women who had very, very, very severe complications compared to normal women who had normal births, to see the difference between the two groups. The total sample is 1,014 women in Burkina Faso. We looked at health consequences, including mortality and, of course, mental health. And what kind of results did you find from this study? The first thing that we find shocked us because we were not expecting it is that we showed that women died more when they were in the complicated group than women who had a normal birth. The second thing is that their baby died more as well, and that continues until one year postpartum. We found as well that they had more healthcare-related debt and that they had more problem of relationship in their family. Is there anything that people can do about this, where there aren't potentially many resources to try and keep an eye on these women and make sure that in that year following birth that they're healthy? Well, I think the issue、uh, often we say that postnatal care has no role to play because women are more or less healthy in the postpartum period. But I think what we are showing is that for a specific group of women, it's not the case, and that. We should target these women for postnatal care visit. The women who have had complication because they are at risk of further morbidity, mortality, and their baby as well are at risk. That was Veronique Filippi. So, does increasing access to medical care lead to a decrease in maternal mortality? Well, a Bangladesh-based study suggests that that is indeed the case. 20 million unsafe or backstreet abortions are carried out globally each year, and account for 13 percent of maternal deaths. But when safe abortion methods were introduced in Bangladesh, abortion mortality fell by 74 percent. The authors are well aware of the political and religious debates surrounding abortion, but it's clear that death from unsafe abortion could be avoided. The study also showed how the introduction of emergency obstetric care has reduced overall maternal mortality by two thirds in the past three decades. 
Comprehensive maternal health systems were compared in two areas, one served by the government and one served by the International Centre for Diarrheal Research Bangladesh, or ICDDRB. I spoke to Corinne Ronsmans. The reason why it's interesting to look in Bangladesh is that there are two specificities about Bangladesh. One is that the government has invested in a major way in emergency obstetric care, so strengthening hospitals, uh, making sure cesarean sections are available, blood transfusion can be done. And also Bangladesh has had a very impressive family planning policy for a very long time. So the context makes it interesting to look over 30 years, which is what we did, to see whether there are any effects on maternal mortality. Now, within your study, you looked at two separate areas who were looked after by different healthcare systems. Can you just explain what those systems are? Well, they all were part of Bangladesh, so they all shared uh, family planning, menstrual regulation, access to emergency obstetric care. But the big difference between the two areas is that in the area that we call the ICDDRB area, midwives have been posted in the community in 1987 and women were invited to give birth first in their home with the midwife and then later on in health centres. So the big difference between the two areas is one area had midwives to help women give birth and the other area didn't. And what kind of difference did that make? That's not a straightforward question. (laughs) Mortality declined in both areas dramatically by 68% in the area with the midwives and by 54% in the area without the midwives. And we believe what explains that decline in both areas is a reduction in abortion mortality and access to emergency obstetric care. The speed of decline was a little bit faster after the midwives were posted in the ICDDRB area, but that difference was not significant. So our conclusion in terms of the role of midwives is that we probably think that they facilitated access to emergency care but we might not have had enough time to show this significantly. That is quite a surprise that even when there weren't midwives around that mortality rates declined anyway. So should people really be investing so much in midwives? Because I imagine it's not cheap to be supplying midwives across a whole nation. I think, yes, people should be invited in midwives, provided access to a hospital is there. And when I say access, that means geographically, which in Bangladesh it's a highly densely populated area. People live reasonably close to the hospital, but also financial access. So once you have access to a life-saving cesarean section, surely midwives can help you identify the women who need referral, etc. So yes, I think we need to invest in midwives, provided referral care is available. Despite good evidence for the need to increase access to maternal services, Anne Stars told me that there will continue to be a shortfall in resources unless people start making a long-term funding commitment. Donors need to step up to the plate. There has been a real reluctance within the donor community to deal with these fundamental health infrastructure issues for many years. Donors were, I think, looking for what they call the quick wins, the low-cost, high-impact interventions. And that works for some issues, but for maternal health, it's not going to work. You really need to make the long-term investment. But there are things that can be done in the shorter term to improve the skills. Getting supplies and equipment is something that can be done relatively quickly. And even improving infrastructure is something that can be done relatively quickly with community commitment, with community involvement. Is there something that doctors in their surgeries can easily do to 
improve the likelihood of survival and while we're trying to wait for better funding for donors to step up as you say. Mm-hmm. Well that's an interesting question. Uh, doctors are clearly a part of the answer to this problem particularly in, in countries where some of the operative clinical skills are needed to save the life of a woman. But I think the other critical role for doctors and other higher-level medical professionals to play is on the advocacy. Doctors have a tremendous influence and impact on pushing governments to change policies and to allocate greater resources. That was Anne Stars, the Executive Vice President of Family Care International in New York. And that was Anna Lacey with her report on maternal health. Now, in certain parts of the world where leprosy is still a problem, the increased availability of HIV antiretroviral therapy could trigger leprosy in some patients receiving those drugs. That's according to Diana Lockwood of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, who spoke about the link between HIV and leprosy at the recent international conference on antimicrobial agents and chemotherapy. When I spoke to her at the meeting in Chicago, she told me that while the link between tuberculosis and HIV is well known, the case has been much less clear with leprosy. However, she and her colleagues were given some new avenues to investigate when they came across a patient with TB. Rather curiously, in London, we saw a very interesting patient who was a Ugandan immigrant and he presented to a hospital in North London with tuberculosis. He was started on treatment for his tuberculosis and then on treatment for his HIV. At the time when he had his tuberculosis diagnosed, he had a very low CD4 count. And four months later, after he started on his heart, his CD4 count started to come up. And at that time, he developed a lesion on his face that was red and swollen and looked a bit like uh, cellulitis, a skin infection, but a skin biopsy showed that it was leprosy. And so he was very interesting because he had not had leprosy when he had a very low CD4 count, but as his CD4 count rose and he regained some immune function, at that point his leprosy kicked in. So how might you explain this? I think that the explanation is that, that, well, there are several possible explanations. Possibly HIV uh, suppresses the, the response to mycobacterium leprae. What I think is more likely is that it illustrates how uh, many patients, you need, uh, you need some immunity to uh, produce a response to mycobacterium leprae. And actually, in a way, we know that because what we've, you know, we've known for many years that what's bad in leprosy is the very severe inflammation and destruction that you get of the nerves. And so uh, it was interesting because with the patients that we've now seen elsewhere, who have problems with HIV and leprosy are having a very serious inflammation. So it's as if just having their immune system restored a little bit really enables them to embark on that destructive response to to mycobacterium leprae, which was suppressed when they were very sick with their their HIV. Um, Is this something then that we have to be increasingly aware of, the fact that some patients might be starting antiretroviral therapy and then this this may happen, leprosy may, may come about? Yes, and we've seen this very nicely in Brazil, for instance. This is where most of the the, the cases have been reported from. And increasingly it will be reported from Africa, because as heart is rolled out through Africa, and there's still a lot of leprosy in Africa, that's going to be a problem. But the real hotspot is going to be India, because India 
that uh, has the combination of HIV in its big urban centres and patients now being able to access through government programmes antiretroviral therapy. You did also talk about the elimination efforts. Um, I'd like to get briefly your thoughts on those as well. I mean, are, are we getting complacent and perhaps could this rolling out of antiretroviral therapy really target that fact? No, I don't think so. I, th I think that one can probably separate out the the elimination campaign from the, from the, the problems associated with HIV and leprosy because it's going to be quite a small number of patients who have co-infection with HIV and leprosy. So it's a problem we need to be aware of, but it's not not going to be mega. No, the point that I was making about the elimination campaign is that the elimination campaign has been defined in a very unusual way you and I have both used the word elimination, whereas actually the campaign is elimination at a case of less than one per, per 10,000 population, which is very different, and that means that you've still got a lot of leprosy uh, uh, patients. And the, the, the point that I'm making is that um, India has been very keen to reach the so-called elimination target and, and has done so as a result much lower case numbers are being reported but now uh, when I was in India a few weeks ago I was seeing that there weren't enough drugs available to treat the leprosy patients who are now being diagnosed this year. We've been very successful with the leprosy campaign in mobilising people and resources and delivering a blister packed uh, a drug treatment which is very easy for patients to take. And I think that um, we're at risk of imperiling that through being too keen on reaching the set targets and not actually saying what's important is actually diagnosing all the patients with leprosy. What do you think needs to be done in this elimination field? What do we actually need to be doing? Well, I think we ought to, in this case, actually drop the word elimination. And I think what we need to know is we need to know how many new, new patients there are. I think that this has shown how setting targets can sometimes be a very double-edged sword. And we've seen that in the, the UK NHS, that when you set a target, sometimes you aren't aware or you can't predict the consequences that, that, it, that it will have. And for some people, setting a target means that they will do everything to reach that target and sometimes you can get unintended consequences. Diana Lockwood of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Polio eradication may not be possible and we may have to reassess our aims when it comes to this disease. That was the key message coming out of a talk given by Dr D.A. Henderson of the University of Pittsburgh. Dr Henderson directed the global smallpox eradication programme for 11 years and with great success but he says there are various reasons why polio is much harder to eradicate. Not least that the oral polio vaccine can give rise to vaccine-derived poliovirus, and people can even carry this particular virus for several years. He began by giving me the background on polio eradication. Polio eradication has been in existence 19 years now. More than $5 billion have been invested in international assistance, the countries themselves have probably spent twice or three times that amount of their own funds in this program. And uh, this is longer than any uh, eradication program has ever been sustained. The smallpox program, from beginning to certification of eradication, was only 12 years. The cost was one-fiftieth of what has already been spent for polio eradication. And the question we must ask ourselves, uh, how realistic is it to consider that the goals that have been set are valid? 
And what do we do in the longer term with regard to vaccination against polio? You're calling for a re-evaluation of, of, of how we go about this, but um, I mean, to what scale must that be done? Are we talking about actually reassessing exactly what we're doing at the moment? Is our plan effectively wasting money, perhaps? What we have to do is look into the future and say, what are we going to do over the long period? Now, right now, we're calling for a great influx of money to be used in a very small number of uh, countries. Uh, and asking for a billion and a half more dollars with the hope that you'd be able to interrupt transmission by the end of 2009. The question is, are we going to be able to do this? And suppose we get to 2009, we still have cases. Uh, and at this time, donors and countries themselves are experiencing fatigue and saying, wait a minute, uh, is this the most important problem we have? We've got lots of cases, speaking from a developing country, of measles, of tuberculosis, of AIDS. We need to put people and resources to work on these because polio has not been a leading problem for us. The problem is, is that polio was a leading problem or became a leading problem in the industrialized countries as other diseases disappeared. But it has not been a priority in the developing countries. So what do we do is the question from here on out. If we're not going to be able to eradicate, where's plan B? What are we going to do at the end of that time? And I think plan B is that we're going to have to do something about polio control indefinitely. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Let's say in the Americas, their last case was 1991, and they've been doing it ever since, uh, 16, 17 years, polio control, and very successfully, uh, why, couldn't the, why can't this be done in many other countries? So it's, that's the question. And do we have as a goal stopping all use of oral polio vaccine, which is now the dogma of the program? And I think the answer at this point in time is it's very hard to see how we cannot continue using it because the inactivated vaccine is so expensive. 315 a dose as opposed to 15 cents a dose for the oral polio vaccine. And uh, most developing countries simply cannot afford that. Where does the WHO stand on this at the moment? I mean, what is their attitude? Are they thinking that there is a cut-off point, perhaps, at which point they will say, well, we will have to pursue this plan B? The uh, WHO at this time is uh, the plans are well laid out. And the plan, uh, quite simply, is that we will make a special effort over the next two years that we would reach the time at the end of 2009, and that would be our last cases, then we have three years of um, surveillance. At the end of that time, hopefully no other cases are found. And then all or use of oral polio vaccine will stop so that we would not get continuing spread of, of the vaccine-derived polio viruses. But of course, we have carriers of the vaccine-derived viruses, which have, are well documented to have carried this for several years. In one case here in Britain, where a man perfectly healthy has now carried it for 27 years, still excreting the virus. So uh, how many other people are like that? 
heaven knows how many there are. So what is plan B? If you can't stop the uh, oral polio vaccine or it doesn't make sense to do it, and you can't afford, the, the, vac the developing countries can't afford to use the inactivated polio vaccine, what is plan B? And they have no plan B. Uh, the only plan B is we simply have to succeed. That's Dr. D.A. Henderson of the Centre for Biosecurity at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Centre. And he gave a speech at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. That's it for this edition of the Audio News Programme, but please do keep checking for more. And from myself and the team, it's goodbye.